thing is as well, they're, they're heading out the door. I, I don't know how you guys are doing on your fasting. I hope it's going well. I got nothing from, from that. Going well, good. Just as we're, as we're drawing to an, to an end, remember one of the things we're going to do is we're going to take the money that we save um, from the meals that we fast, and we're going to donate that to uh, a Christian cause, an evangelistic and outreach. So there's a lot of ideas. I'm not here to tell you where to where to go, but there there are a number of opportunities. Uh, some of the favorites have always been like Voice of the Martyrs has been one that we've uh, um, donated to Samaritan's Purse. We're getting ready to do shoebox ministry. Um, I'm sure the Christian school would uh, would welcome uh, your fasting uh, largesse, if you will. So um, think of, begin now to start thinking about and praying about where would you like your um, where would you like to give. So, anyways, just thought I'd mention that. So, anyways, we're going to be studying in the book of Luke, and we're now in chapter four of the book of Luke. And so, as you are as you are turning there, I was um I was thinking to myself, I wonder how I would, what my response would be if I lived in the days of Jesus and heard him teach. What if I lived during that time and I heard and saw Jesus teaching? Would I be one of those people who received his word and said, "Oh man, what a great guy! I want to be on his side." Would I be one of those who would hear, "Follow me," and I would leave my nets behind and go and follow him, or would I be one of those people who say, "You know"? This guy's a little off. Would I be one of those people who yell crucify him? I wonder. I I, I don't know. Would I be one of those people who yelled crucify him and then later said, oh my gosh, we've crucified the Son of God? Or would I be one of those people who said crucify him and then go about my own self-righteousness thinking I did a noble and righteous thing? I don't know. But I often think about that. I also think about what if Jesus today walked into this church and took the pulpit and proclaimed a message to the church on Round Place. I, I wonder what he would say. We, we kind of thought about this a while back because when we were studying the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to seven churches. And most of them, he said, you know what, I have, you guys are doing this really well, but on the other hand, these are some things you need to deal with. There was a church he gave no blessing to. And there were some churches also that he gave no warning. I have a feeling we'd be probably be one of those churches where he would say, well, you're doing this well, but I have this against you. But I wonder what Jesus would say to the church on Ramble Place. I wonder if he walked in here and proclaimed a message. I wonder what we would think about it, how we would respond. Well, as we come to Luke chapter 4, verse th- four, beginning with verse 13, we are going to see that Jesus actually does preach a message. And he preaches it at his home, um, I don't want to say church, he, they didn't have church, but his home synagogue. The synagogue he grew up in, the one where he was known, the one that he'd been in probably for 30 years of his life. He came in 
and he proclaimed a message to his home at his hometown uh, place of worship. And so there are a couple of directions I think I want to go in our uh, in our message today. And the first thing I want to do is we're, we're going to provide a little bit of background in order for us to, to really understand where this text is going to go. A little bit of background information is going to be important. Then I'm going to provide or Luke provide for us a brief summary. And then what um, what happens is we see these two cycles of teaching and response uh, provided for us in the text. So there's a cycle one, Jesus teaches, and then there's a response to his teaching. Then there's a second cycle of teaching and response. So we want to look at what does Jesus teach, and how do the people respond, and then how do we respond when we hear the word of God. And so that's the direction I want to go today. What I would like to do right now is just provide a little bit of background um, as we come into this passage of text. That is, a, um, so as we come into Luke chapter 4, verse, verses 13 through 21, we need to understand a little bit of background. I'm sorry that map kind of washed out. But first of all, we should realize that the Gospels are selective. Do you realize that? The Gospels are selective. They don't tell us every little thing that Jesus did, and they don't always tell us in chronological order. Sometimes they skip events, and sometimes they actually skip over huge amounts of time. This is what John said. John said, now Jesus did a whole lot of different things, and if I were to write them all to you, I suppose the library of the world couldn't contain them. However, these things I have written to you that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and in believing you might have life in his name. In other words, Jesus did a whole bunch of stuff. I'm not telling you everything. I've selected certain things, and those things that I've selected, I selected them for a very specific purpose, so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, and that in believing, or by knowing that you have been believing in him, you would have life in his name. So he's deliberately evangelistic. I'm going to choose certain events that demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God and that you can believe in Him and have eternal life. So he's very selective. Luke also is very selective. For instance, what we see in the Gospel of Luke is we see the temptation of Jesus, we see the baptism of Jesus Christ, the temptation of Jesus Christ, and then immediately we, after the temptation, we see Jesus entering into the synagogue of Nazareth. This is going to be our text today. Entering into the synagogue of Nazareth and preaching a sermon. What Luke doesn't tell us, and that's important for us to understand if we're to understand the text, is that Jesus' entrance into the synagogue in Nazareth didn't happen immediately after his temptation. In fact, about a year and a half of ministry in the southern part of Judea has been going on. If you'll recall, um, Israel is divided basically into three sections. The southern part is, at least um, during the time of Jesus, we have basically three divisions of Israel. We have Judea in the south, we have Samaria in the middle, and this was kind of a, uh, these were people looked down upon, so 
most righteous people wouldn't even walk through Samaria. They would kind of go around the side of the Jordan River if they were traveling south to north or north to south. And then Galilee. And Galilee is really where Jesus was born. So the first thing is, is that um, our text today occurs about a year and a half after his temptation. And he's been very active in ministry, mostly working in the south. In fact, during this year and a half ministry, John said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, during this year and a half ministry, actually traveled up to Cana, performed his first miracle. You guys remember what that is? Water and wine. Okay. Does a, does a little bit of work over here in um, Capernaum. Goes back down south. Cleanses the temple. Uh, meets with Nicodemus. Tells him he must be born again. Travels back up. Goes through Samaria, meets the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, all right, and a little revival breaks out there. Goes back into Cana, then into Capernaum, heals the nobleman's son. So all of that has been going on um, in between verse 12 and 13 of the Gospel of Luke. All right, but you should know that this is, this is going to help us interpret the text a little bit. There's one other thing that we should know, another little piece of history or more history that we should note that I think will be important to us. And um, let's, let's advance one screen. There we go. You'll recall that in the Old Testament, after the reign of Solomon, there was a civil war. Remember that? And what happened? The land of Israel got divided into the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. I point this out because there were two prophets, very prominent men, Elijah and Elisha. I just want to point out that they prophesied in the north. This is going to be important for us as we continue into our text. Okay, are you with me? All right. So let's just... Some, some background there, um, that Galilee, where Jesus is going to be speaking, where our text is going to be recording his sermon, is actually part of the former northern kingdom, where much of the ministry of Elijah and Elisha took place. And so now um, we see, we're going to see that Jesus returns home to Nazareth and he begins to teach. So with that, I'm going to read our text today, and, uh, and then we'll spend some time looking at uh, what's going on in the life and uh, work of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 4, verse 13, as we come to the Word of God, it says, actually verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, a prophet is acceptable in his, own, in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of God. Father, we come before you and we pray that you would enlighten our hearts and engage our minds that we might understand what is the word of the Lord, that we might obey and follow all the days of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. The first thing that we see is that Jesus now returns to Galilee, and Luke is very um, precise in saying that he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. Once again, I don't think we've really had a single day of discussion where where Luke has not mentioned the Holy Spirit. I think every single text, Luke has mentioned the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is huge for, uh, uh, for Luke. And so now Jesus returns in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, of course, we ask, what does that mean? And certainly, I think that has to do with that Jesus was doing mighty works. We're going to see that in verse 17. But Luke seems to focus on Jesus' teaching. That seems to be Luke's uh, emphasis, at least in this passage of text. And so we would say that certainly the power of the Holy Spirit has to do with mighty works, and I'll talk about that in just a little bit. But Luke really seems to say, to, to emphasize this idea of Jesus' teaching being that of empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we also see that Jesus' ministry was very public because news about him spread. And interestingly enough, his word was well received. And we see this, of course, in um, verse 15. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. They loved him. Of course, we might want to consider, I wonder what he was teaching that brought such excitement. We're going to get an example of that teaching this morning. We're going to hear a sermon by Jesus Christ. It's an extremely brief sermon, but it is also an extremely powerful sermon where basically Jesus is saying that the Messianic age has come and the time of the Messiah is here and all of the promises of God are now being fulfilled. This is what one of those things that brought people to say, wow, this is pretty interesting. So that's our, our introduction, our brief summary. Let's look at... His, the cycle one, his teaching in Nazareth. First of all, we see that he enters the synagogue. This is the synagogue where he grew up. He was raised in Nazareth, and so I don't know if his family is there, his brothers, sisters. They're probably grown and married at this point. 
Jesus is at least 30, probably 30, 31, 32 years old. So his brothers and, and siblings probably are married. I wonder if he's got nephews and nieces running around. They all know Uncle Jesus. Yeah, he's been kind of down in Judea for the past year and a half doing some things. And we've heard about some of his things going on up here. But this is his hometown. We also should note, just a little plug here, that it was his custom to gather weekly for corporate public worship. And we could go off on a sermon just on the... Jesus found it necessary to join weekly in corporate public worship. I'll let you draw the application yourself from that. That isn't the, our text today. Our emphasis today is to look at how Jesus was given the scroll and he stood up to read. Now, you should understand a little bit about how um, the importance of the synagogue. The synagogue was the center, kind of the central part of a person, of the community life. People gathered there on, uh, on the Sabbath day, uh, sundown Friday to, uh, uh, to sundown Saturday. And this was the time the synagogues were essentially established so that people could teach God's law. And a synagogue could be established anywhere there were ten Jewish males. All right. If there were not ten Jewish males, generally um, people would find a, a place where there was a river or something. And they would meet. You remember in Acts, Paul went down and he met Lydia down by the river because there was no synagogue. There were ten Jewish males. And so he went down to the river thinking there would be some, some worshippers of God down there. He knew where to find the worshippers of God. So the synagogue was kind of the center of Jewish life. It was the place where uh, instruction in God's word took place. We don't know exactly when the synagogue started. If you read the Old Testament, you won't find a synagogue. So most Bible students would conclude that probably during Babylonian captivity, remember the, the Jerusalem temple had been destroyed, they were exiled into Babylon and probably some sort of a, a facility opened up so that we could teach people's God, so we could teach people God, people God's law couldn't offer sacrifice. They could only do that at the temple. But we could gather together and we could pray together and we could read God's word together. That is most likely the place where the synagogue began. And we should note that the order of service in a synagogue, let's go to that order of service here, was, there was always a, a reading of the Shema. And the Shema, you know, is Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. All right, it's called the Shema because Shema means here and The verse starts with here. So, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So, there was always the reading of the Shema. There would have been a reading of set prayers. Um, There was a prayer called the 18 Benedictions, where they would go through and uh, recite uh, various attributes of God. Then there would be a reading from the law, that is, from the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So there would be a reading selected from those five books. Then there would be a reading from the prophets. Then there would be an instruction on, you know, basically a sermon. And then there would be a benediction that they would leave. That's basically how the synagogue would have worked. And so Jesus is now reading from the prophets. So we kind of know where they're at in the order of worship, don't we? 
And uh, so he reads from the prophets, and he's, he's given a scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and he opens up to Isaiah chapter, what we would call Isaiah chapter 61, and this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. For us to properly understand the remaining text, we should probably give a little bit of background on what's going on in Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, the Jewish people um, were in captivity in Babylon. Remember, because of their sin, they were um, in captivity. And so Isaiah now is speaking of one who delivered them from that captivity. He's speaking that there is going to come somebody, a spirit-empowered individual, who is going to enable the release of the captives. The Spirit of God is going to come upon this individual and by the power of the Holy Spirit, release the people from their captivity. The spirit-empowered person um, is related to... uh, if you read Isaiah, you'll see this, uh, this servant figure in Isaiah 53. He's the suffering servant. But we see the servant figure all the way through the book of Isaiah and that the servant figure is one who is filled with the Holy Spirit and enabled to do to bring about God's purposes. For instance, in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And then in Isaiah chapter 42, Verses 1 through 4, I won't read them all, but it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. But the point here is, my servant's going to come. I'm going to put my spirit upon him, and he's going to do these various things. And then we see in Isaiah 61, we see this spirit-empowered servant. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has has anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. And so this is the background This that there is going to be this spirit-empowered um, servant who is going to come and proclaim the gospel to the poor, to... Um, to set it, uh, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and notice this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or the favorable year of the Lord. Folks, as we read Scripture, when you read something like that, and you read favorable year of the Lord, boy, oh boy, this should point us right back to the year of Jubilee. Right? This is Jubilee language. Remember a year of Jubilee with every 50th year? And every 50th year, debts were canceled. All right? So this Spirit-empowered servant is going to come. He is empowered by the Spirit because he is going to proclaim the gospel. He is going to set people free. And he is going to bring about the Jubilee. Jesus reads this. And Jesus is going to apply this passage of text to himself. In other words, what he's going to do is he is going to say, I am the spirit-filled servant 
that was spoken of by Isaiah. That is me. Here we go. You ready? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach to the poor, to proclaim release, to open blind eyes, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He reads this text, then he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, and then he sits down. Please do not understand this in a Western church context. Because the way we would understand it is Jesus went back to the pew and sat down. That's not at all what happened. Jesus sat down and preachers sat to preach. I kind of like that. We should adopt that. Get a big old lazy boy up here, right? <laughs> Jesus, so when he sat down, he was not just like done. He sat down to preach. So whatever follows is his sermon. And you'll notice all of the eyes are upon him. They're looking upon him. They're anticipating. Again, this is something probably every preacher looks at and goes, man, that's what I want. Everybody's sitting there going, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? There is anticipation. And so here is Jesus' sermon. Today that scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am a spirit-filled servant who will set, who will proclaim the gospel to the poor, who will set at liberty those who are captives, who will give sight to the blind, and to declare the favorable year of the Lord. I'm the fulfillment of all of that. That's a sermon. That's an amazing passage of text. I am the Spirit-filled servant. I am the promise of God. Those who are bankrupt before God, I have now come to fill you. Those of you who are captive to your sins, I am here to set you free. Those of you who are unable to see the light of the gospel, I am the light of the world. Those of you who are shattered and downtrodden, I am the one who will fix that. I have come to to remove the debt and declare you debt-free. That's me. 800 years have gone by, and here it is, God's promise fulfilled in your hearing. There is no comp- there is no mistake what Jesus is saying. He just read the Scriptures and He said, today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Here's the response. Cycle one. Teaching, he's just taught us. Cycle two, the response, verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So here's the response. It's mixed. That's an amazing sermon. Wow. I was moved. But aren't you Joseph's son? I remember when you were running around the street playing in the dirt. I remember when you were just making yoke rock for the oxen team that I had. I remember when you were just making tables and chairs. I remember when you were just this high. And you're here telling me that I need my eyes opened and that I need the gospel proclaimed that somehow I need to have my, my debts released. Are you telling me, you, Joseph's son, that you're that guy? I don't know about that. How can you be that guy 
when I know that you're Joseph's son. Proclamation of the word of God response is, I'm not so sure. It sounds good. I would love to believe it. But for the past 30 years, I know you as Joseph's son. So now we come to cycle two. Jesus continues to teach. And he says, now doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. Here's his first teaching. He expresses the heart of the listeners. Basically what they're saying is, um, put up or shut up. If that's you, then you ought to do whatever it is you did in Capernaum. It sounds like he did some miraculous things in Capernaum. Perhaps it's the healing of the nobleman's son. But something happened in Capernaum, another town a little bit away, where Jesus did something amazing, some sort of mighty work, some sort of great deed, maybe a healing or the casting out of demons or something like that. And they're saying, oh, you're the spirit-inspired servant of God? Well, then put up shut up. Do something in here like you did in Capernaum. Then we'll believe. Do some miracle. Do some great work. He has just proclaimed the word of God and they're saying we would rather see you do a miracle. I want you to understand miracles are an important part of the ministry and the work of Christ and of the church. In fact, next week we're going to look. Jesus does just that. He goes about and does all kinds of miracles. But I do want us to understand the deficiency of miracles. Because miracles will never save a person. They have never saved a person ever. How do I know that? Because Paul tells us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Miracles may substantiate the word of Christ. They may authenticate the word of Christ. They may break down a barrier that might hinder a person from believing the word of Christ. But it is the gospel that saves. Jesus just came and says, I'm preaching the gospel to you. And they say, we don't want that. We want, some, we want to see you do something first. Do a miracle first. Then we'll believe you. If you're not going to believe my words, and Jesus later on in, in other places, if, if they don't believe the words of Moses, they're not going to believe anything that I happen to do. Please do not think for a moment that I am anti-miracle. I am pro-miracle. Every time we pray for somebody's salvation, we are praying for a miracle to occur. Every time we pray, Lord, heal this person. Lord, I know this person has cancer. Lord, I know that these things have happened. Keep somebody safe on the road or whatever. Every time we open up our mouth in prayer, we are praying for a miracle. The reason we are praying for a miracle is because we believe what Jesus has spoken, and that is, I am a miracle-working Savior. And so, the first parable, or or the first proverb, is they say, put up or shut up, do what you did in Capernaum, otherwise we're not going to have anything to do with you, Joseph's son. Not spirit-inspired servant The next proverb says is, uh, 
the next part of the teaching goes like this. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. It's interesting that all experts are from out of town. Parents, you really, you understand this, right? You tell your kids over and over and over again until you're blue in the face. And they look at you like you're just like, oh, man. Then they come home one day and they said, you know what? My friend's dad, he told me something. It's amazing. You won't believe what he told me. And they say the exact same thing you've been yammering on for the past five years. They tell you the same thing that some other person told them. And now they're believing it. And you nod your head going, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. My kids don't listen to me, but somehow some friend told them something and it connected. This is exactly, this familiarity somehow breeds contempt. They are familiar with Jesus, and Jesus says a prophet, a prophet is not without honor, or is without honor in his hometown. And then, and then, continues on teaching and oh what a message he says I tell you the truth Jesus often begins the sermons that way verily verily I say to you so in other words I'm telling you the truth here Here, here's the the truth I'm going to tell you two stories the first story is about a guy by the name of Elijah remember told you Elijah ministered in approximately some same region. This is very relevant to these people. They know Elijah was in their, in their area doing ministry. And he said, now Elijah, great prophet, he came into our area. And he had shut up the heavens for three and a half years. And there was famine in the land and people were dying. There was no water, there was no food, and people were starving. It affected not only Israel, but the the regions around Israel. And there was this great famine. Everybody in Israel was suffering. Everybody. Even, Even Elijah was suffering. Everybody was feeling the effects of the famine. Everybody was wondering if they were going to live another day. And Elijah come, and even though there were many widows in that day, Living in the land of Israel, God did not send Elijah to any one of the Israelite women. Instead, he sent them to a Gentile woman, a widow. First of all, we should note, if there is somebody of low class on the rungs of society, especially in those days, it would have been a widow, Gentile. God could have brought his miraculous, wondrous works to any of the widows in Israel, but he didn't go to any of them. Instead, he went to this Gentile woman. If you read this account, this account comes to us in 1 Kings chapter 17. And I'm not going to go into great detail. You can read that. But Elijah comes to this woman and she's basically getting herself, basically preparing herself to die. And Elijah comes and says, basically says, do these, I'm a prophet of God, hear my words. And what did she do? She did exactly what the prophet of God said to do. Then guess what happened? A miracle. 
So note the order of events. Believe the word of God, and then God did amazing things. Do you see the problem in Nazareth? The word of God's been spoken, and they're like going, no, no, no. Miracle first, then maybe we'll believe. This Gentile woman, widow, hears the word of God, believes the word of God, and God does wonders and miraculous things in her midst. He's going, prophet, I, I come to you speaking the word of God, and you will not believe it. Just like in the days of Elijah, you did not believe it, and so God sent his word to a Gentile widow. She believed. And she lived. Oh, and by the way, there is also a guy by the name of Naaman in the days of Elijah. Remember Elijah? He followed Elijah. Naaman. There, there were a whole lot of lepers in Israel during those days. But God didn't send Elisha to any of the lepers in Israel. Instead, he sent Elisha to some to Naaman, a, um, a Syrian general of all the people. Of all the people in Israel and all the people who have leprosy, God didn't go to any one of them. He went to Naaman, a Syrian general, a pagan, a Gentile, a guy who worships false gods. And he went to him and said, dunk yourself in the Jordan River. And Naaman had a little bit of hesitancy, but he did. Eventually, he believed the word of God. And then what happened? A miracle. And he was healed. And God is now, or Jesus is now saying to these people, Naaman believed the word of God. And then God did great and wondrous things. The problem was not lack of miracles. The problem was people who did not see themselves as poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and poor. That was the problem. Jesus said, I come to preach the gospel to, to you. Your problem is that you do not see your, any need for the gospel. And just like the church of Laodicea, where Jesus says, you consider yourself rich. You consider yourself having all these things. You consider yourself wealthy and well off. And I'm telling you that you are poor and wretched and miserable and blind. Buy from me gold and buy from me silver and buy from me all the things that, that you could ever want. I am your source of riches. And Jesus has come into the town and said, the Spirit of God is upon me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. And you want, to, you want something else. You will not believe my words. You are just like your forefathers. You're no different than in the days of Elijah and Elisha. And so the gospel will, as I'm getting ahead of myself, the gospel ends up departing. So, quick summary of what Jesus has just taught. The rejection, it is, this is about the rejection of God's word. He sent you God's word and you rejected him. And now God's word is going to go to those who you deem unworthy. You're acting just like your forefathers. You haven't changed a bit. And the 800 years that have passed, you have not changed one bit. You still are living in the days of Elijah and Elisha. The word of God has come, and you've rejected it. Well, then, that's cycle two teaching. I wonder what the response of cycle two's teaching is. Well, there it is. All right. We, we should kill the guy. That seems appropriate. Let's just kill him. And, and so they drove him out of the synagogue and to a precipice on the hill. And, and I start to wonder, I'm going, so this is his home church. 
I wonder if his family's involved. I wonder if his brothers. And I don't know. I, I, I'm just wondering who all is involved in this. But people have known him since he's a little boy. Kill the man. Kill the man. How dare he come and tell me that I am poor and wretched and blind and in need of some sort of a gospel and light and death canceled. How dare he say something like that, folks. Many continue to respond similarly when people realize that God's message is receive my word or be responsible for the judgment of, that comes from rejecting God's word. Have you shared the gospel with somebody and they have said, who, who are you to tell me to repent of my sin? You're not God. You don't know me. God knows me. Yes, he does. And he's calling you to repent of your sin. And then we get here. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. There is all sorts of discussion about this passive text. I wonder what the hill is. Where's the hill? And so we're trying to find the hill, and there's all sorts of suggestions on what the, where the cliff was, and all of these things. And then passing through his mist, I, I wonder what that means. Was this some sort of miracle? Did he float through them? Did he just walk through them? Did he was he translated? And all sorts of things that are really important and worth, worth looking at. But I look at this passage of text, and this is what I see. He went away. What a horrible, horrible day for the people of Nazareth. Jesus came and preached at their church, and they rejected him, and he went away. Look at this passage in Matthew chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus had gone, gone and um, he had healed two men who were possessed by demons and he cast the demons into the pigs and the pigs ended up drowning in the sea. And this is what it says. The herdsmen fled, the people who saw this. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. These men, man, you can't believe these men got healed. of They were demon-possessed and now they aren't. And the pigs, they're all gone, but demon-possessed men, they're no longer demon-possessed. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus and were thinking, revival! And when they saw Him, they begged Him to leave their region. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into the boat, He crossed over. This is a, this is a really heavy passage of text. We've heard you teach, Jesus. We know who you are. And now we are rejecting it and we want to kill you. And he passed through their midst and he went away. And to my knowledge and most Bible students would say, he never returned back to Nazareth. I'm not saying that Nazareth never got another witness or the gospel never came to Nazareth. I'm just simply saying, Jesus came in preached in their synagogue and said, we want nothing to do with it. Go away. And he did. I'll close with this. 
Jesus was rejected for many reasons, but I think one of the reasons was his familiarity. We know exactly who he is. And there may be a lot of people in, in, in this congregation or who, who listen to this message who've heard about Jesus all their life. Perhaps you've grown in the, up in the church and you've heard about Jesus forgiving you of your sins and dying on the cross and it's old hat to you and you've heard it. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm familiar with that. I've heard it a thousand times before. Do not let your familiarity with Jesus Christ cause you to say, go away and don't come back. All right? Jesus is preaching in our midst. I wonder what would happen if Jesus came to our church and preached. I will submit this to you. Jesus preaches every week in this church. I am not Jesus. Please don't think I'm saying that. The Word of God is proclaimed every week. When you read your Bible, and hopefully you have a regular time of reading your Bible, Jesus is preaching. All right? So we do not have to ask. I wonder what would happen. I wonder how we would respond if Jesus came into our midst and taught us. I wonder how we would respond. You don't need to ask that question. You can just simply say, how do I respond every week when I read God's Word or hear the Gospel preach? How do I respond? There's your answer. And so I will say today, the message of Jesus has been fulfilled in your hearing because Jesus has come. He is the spirit-empowered servant of, of the book of, that Isaiah spoke about. He has come, he, he is anointed, and he has proclaimed the gospel to to the poor. He has proclaimed liberty to captives. He has proclaimed recovery of sight to the blind. He has set at liberty those who are oppressed, and he has proclaimed favorable year of the Lord. The gospel has been proclaimed. The gospel is that Jesus lived and died for your sins according to the scriptures, and on the third day he rose again, and that you can be forgiven of your sins, that he will, that your sins can be Put upon Christ and His righteousness upon you and you can become the righteousness of God fully forgiven of every offense against God right now. You can have, you can hear that message and you can believe that message. You can be free from, from that which enslaves us and that which cap, cap, captive, makes us captive. It is by the Holy Spirit that the Scriptures are illuminated. Jesus comes and he illumines the scriptures for us that we might be able to understand them and see him in the scriptures and to proclaim that your debts are canceled. That can happen today. And I will tell you this. Do not, I implore you, do not act like the people of Nazareth who who sought to silence the message and didn't want anything to do with it. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, this could be your final opportunity. And people say, oh, well, you're just trying to scare me into the kingdom. First of all, if you come into the kingdom scared, that would be good because you're in the kingdom. I can live with that. Um, I have no problem with that. But that's not my intent. But the reality is that you don't know tomorrow and you don't know today. I was just reading in the Payton Roundup day, uh, this week. Two more people died at Fossil Creek this week. Two more men drowned. One trying to save the other. Now you think, when they went to Fossil Creek, you think that they were planning that this was going to be their last day or were they planning a day of celebration and, and enjoyment and a lot of fun? They came in planning on a day of enjoyment and a lot of fun and it ended up being their last day. Nobody made that plan. 
and it was their last day. Here's the other thing, because you don't know tomorrow, but here's the other thing. Sin hardens us to the gospel, and every, when we reject the gospel, we become harder and harder and harder to it. And when the gospel goes forth, like now, and you reject that gospel, I don't know how sensitive Jesus left. So I would implore you, I would urge you, that if the Spirit of God is speaking upon your heart right now and telling you that, man, it is time for me to get serious with God, it is time for me to repent of my sins and come and submit my life to the Lordship of Christ. By the way, He comes to be Lord of your life. He does not want to just come into your heart. Oh, no. He's come to take over. All right? He is not some gentleman who's just going to kind of rearrange the furniture and vacuum the floor. Oh my God, he's going to tear the house down. He's going to rebuild a new house. He's going to make you a whole new creation. He is not here to just come and be, you know, some guy who kind of walks along with you. Oh no, he, he's, going to, he's going to lead you and guide you and he's going to take over. That's what I'm asking you. I'm asking you that to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says, follow me, get up and follow him. So that's, God is convicting you. Maybe it's through my words, but it's the Holy Spirit. It's time for us to stop playing around and come to repentance and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And I'm here to repent, and I want you to be Lord of my life. I'm willing to submit my life to you. Even if you think you've got it all together, Jesus still needs Lord to be Lord of your life. If you don't got it all together and your life's falling apart, Jesus can tear that house down and rebuild it. But, so I, I'm urging you that let us not be like the people of Nazareth who heard the word of God, rejected it, and he went away. So stand, let's pray. If you would like to... Uh, Respond to a gospel invitation. Um, we are here, and we would love to spend some time talking with you about what it means to, uh, to live a life with Christ as Lord of our life and what it means to do that for the rest of your life. Let's pray. So, our Father, we come to you this day thanking you for your wonderful mercy and grace. We thank you that Jesus spoke the gospel. I thank you, Lord God, that you did not the gospel being preached to me in my life how often I rejected it and one day Lord God you opened my eyes I thank you Lord God and so I pray that this day would be the day that eyes are opened the gospel is proclaimed and debts are cancelled and Jesus is Lord so I pray that that would happen Lord God if we've been walking in, in error if we've been walking in way that compromises your truth, Lord, this would be the day that we would say, okay, I'm done. I am going to live my life in accordance with the purposes of Christ for the glory of God. So we ask, Lord God, that you would convict us and show us your truth. These things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.